Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby, and today, can sovereignty survive? Just how much does a country have control over its own economy? We often talk about our economy as though it's cut off from the rest of the world, and some would argue Donald Trump is trying his best to make sure his economy works just like that, while Britain is leaving Europe because we want to get back our sovereignty. But can you actually do that in a world that's reliant on international trade? Yeah, so just how much control do we have over our own economies? And I ask this, Steve, because it seems to me one of the obvious reasons why wages aren't going up in many parts of the world is because of this interconnectedness of things now. It's because people are concerned that if they push for more money, their employer will outsource overseas. And if they don't outsource overseas, then they're going to push up domestic prices so much that foreign goods become cheaper because the world is obviously more international than ever before. And is it holding back developed nations? Is is that how you see it? That has been a major a factor and of course it's dismissed from mainstream economists and therefore that's another reason to believe it actually happened um, because if you go back to the 1970s that was the beginning of third world countries uh, giving up on to some extent on domestic industrialization because they'd always find themselves in the balance of payments constraint when they did that and thinking what they should do instead is offer free trade zones and I'm pretty certain the World Bank played a major role in suggesting a go from an import-oriented industrialization process to an export-oriented industrialization program. So that was beginning way, way back in the 1970s. And it was actually mainly the uh, underdeveloped capitalist nations of the world that were doing it, places like Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, to some Thailand, the Thailand has been more successful at running its building its own industries, uh, parts of Latin America as well. Now it's mainly the, the Southeast Asians who carried that off successfully versus what happened with Latin America and until the NAFTA agreement came in. But what they were doing is saying, we've got a great deal for you, an American corporation, um, relocate your production here, uh, employ our workers in a free trade zone where you don't pay any import duties yourself and you can re-export back to America also evading any tariffs because the American tax laws had a had a loophole with deliberate loophole to encourage third world countries that said uh, if you exported American goods in a semi-finished form to a third world country and imported them back in again you paid no tariff on the change in value so that was a way of evading tariffs as well so American corporations looking at this would say well I could be paying somebody that I'm going to use a hypothetical ten dollars an hour in America uh, versus I can pay them $10 a week, uh, maybe even $10 a month in some of these third world countries. And what that meant was there was a dramatic uh, increase in the margin going to the capitalists, the owners of these corporations, at the expense of their workers. So what they would do is say, that looks like a great, great deal. In many, in quite a few cases with expensive capital equipment, they'd shut down the local operation, shift the machinery to the third world and rebuild it there. In other cases, they'd build domestically. That was effectively a dramatic transfer from the working class of the America and the, the rest of the advanced capitalist nations, mainly America in terms of sheer scale, of course, to uh, developing nations. Now, 
that was big enough way, way through from 1970 and 1980 to be something that I was I was politically involved in through working in overseas aid at the time and also in, in Australia's trade relations too. So I saw quite a bit of it actually. But then it really took off in 1981-82 when China entered the game when under Zhang Xiaoping. And China was extremely clever about this. They they saw what happened with a lot of these companies in, in particularly in the textile manufacturing and shoe manufacturing trade in Southeast Asia, that the, the country companies would move their equipment to, let's say, um, Malaysia, uh, first off, educated workforce, they speak English, et cetera, et cetera. Um, set up in a free trade zone, the wages would start to rise after a while. And as the wages started to rise, they'd look and say, well, Indonesia is a lot cheaper. And they'd literally move the whole factory. They'd shut it down again and move the factory across to Indonesia, taking advantage of lower wages. Mm. And Malaysia would be left with, in the aggregate, not, not nothing in the long term, but they got the, the industry that they thought they could cultivate would then disappear, and so and the, and the export revenue went. What the Chinese did was they said, you can take advantage of our cheap wages over here. In the, this is in the, the Shenzhen free trade zone in Guangdong, just north of Hong Kong. Uh, and they said, you can take advantage of it, but two conditions. First of all, you must have a Chinese partner. Secondly, within five years, that Chinese partner has to own half the business. Now, you think of the scale of advantage in terms of the difference in cost of producing a good in America versus producing it in China, if American corporation would sign on the dotted line to a deal like that, but they did. So we're talking about a factor of 10, maybe 20 change in their wage cost. They're going from, you know, $10 an hour to 10 cents an hour that sort of huge change in the costs. So it's and, no surprise then, is it? That, I mean, if you yeah. are, it, no surprise that uh, people who are working in the West are being told by their bosses, well, look, we can't give you a pay rise because we're worried about uh, losing the job entirely to cheaper imports from overseas. So just yeah. stick on the wage you are. You're lucky you've got a job. Effectively. And that's, that's, that has been a, re- a major reason why wages aren't rising right now. And again, uh, it, it isn't just that you've... You know, Transferring a job is more than just transferring a job. You're transferring a skill set as well. Mm. So you would have seen that recent speech by Apple's, uh, what is it, Tim Cook, yep. saying that if you pull together a set of skilled um, uh, manufacturing technicians in America, you might be able to fill the boardroom he was in. And if you pull together them in China, you'd need a stadium for them. Yeah. So the skill set disappears as well that actually is necessary to operate the equipment. And the supply chain just is no longer there in America. So you have to rebuild the supply chain and rebuild the the skilled labor to bring it back over again. There's also, of course, uh, one one of the prospects, and that is the increase in robotics and the increase in machine control of robots. So you don't uh, need people at all, ultimately. Yeah, to which, some extent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and three D three D printing will enhance that as well because a large part of the skills involved in in doing you know high quality manufacturing is cutting that metal absolutely precisely properly, having the machine that can actually produce the machine tools. Uh, that they'll do the work in the first place. As robotics continue and as 3D printing comes in, uh, you've got better control and you don't need to do the cutting. It's actually a, it's, it's a layer on, you know, you're spraying the stuff on rather than cutting it and the precision can go down to micron levels. So the precision problems can partially be addressed and we're seeing a bit of this now because there is to some extent a shifting of production back to America from these countries courtesy of the, of the new technology because again companies are looking at it and saying we made a huge advantage out of the out of the shift from america to the third world now this new technology is coming in which if we actually implemented it properly would be 
it eliminates the labor component almost completely mm. uh, and gives us better quality control domestically and we have a shorter supply chain. Right. Might and help GDP, doesn't help employment though, does it? Which yeah, that's we right. Get, and again, again, you find workers are being screwed. So, yeah. in the, so and this of course gets reflected in the amount that we uh, that we import, which in, in Britain last year, in the, the final quarter of last year, which £55 billion worth of goods and services in one quarter, which is the highest it's ever been. And a lot of it is stuff we need to survive as a country. So it's stuff like trains that we import and power equipment and fuel stuff a lot of stuff that we we used to make trains in britain but now it's obviously it's it's clearly cheaper to import it so of course you know how can you expect wages to increase when you're importing so much because obviously it's cheaper to import than make here yeah and then what you've got is a a contest effectively between the nation state and the corporation well, yeah. couldn't actually the nation state and the corporate state because frankly corporations we make this mistake of talking about markets versus the state uh, as, as if you know the, the state's this huge monolith and the market is full of all these individual little personalized traders inside a corporation it's a command economy and these they're they're taking advantage of the fact they can straddle different nations in a way that nations themselves obviously can't uh, post-colonial days so the corporation is going to exploit differences between nations. And that's a large part of things like the TPP right now, which are trying to even enhance the capability of corporations to sue governments. So there's really been a shift from state power to corporate power. And it's basically one form of monolith to another form of monolith that is not from the state to the market. And meanwhile, isn't it the case that, you know, we, uh, we, we used to hear about, you know, the low wages that were being paid overseas and now we're seeing it happening here. So, for example, uh, one in 10 Amazon employees in Ohio needs government assistance to make ends meet, according to uh, a, 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 a group called Policy Matters Ohio. This is, this is, so they need government assistance to keep their job at Amazon. Amazon makes about $40 billion in revenue. Yeah, and Amazon also manages to show that it gets no profit, so people are actually making a gain out of the increase in the share price rather than out of dividends. So, again, corporations have far more power than workers have had. And, of course, what we've done in the last 30 or 40 years is demonize trade unions, demonize any any cooperative work by workers to try to push for larger wages. And hey, how surprising, wages are falling. Right. So it's got worse than that, though, hasn't it? So it used to yeah. be between, between companies and the workers, and the companies were trying to screw over workers, you know, as much as they possibly could. Mm. Uh, now uh, it's companies in the state, as you're saying, which gets back to the question, can sovereignty survive, or is it mm. all in the hands now of the international companies? At the moment, certainly the national companies have the complete upper hand. And... Um, and what we've allowed to happen is, well, of course, is finance has also been internationalised as well. Mm. So the one thing that can't move internationally are governments. Yep. The states can't shift. They've, 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 you know, they've, well, they've got a little, we're always talking about political conflict between states. but Not without a war. You know, yeah. Not without a war. And in that sense, <laughs> states are much less flexible than corporations are. So corporations have got the flexibility and they've got the legal rights these days. So, And, of course, also with the, with the change in technology, so we are doing more robotics and so on, what you're seeing is a huge redistribution from workers to capitalists in terms of their share of profit. It's often end up in the hand of the financial sector, which is totally unproductive. But it, it certainly is the case that you're, you're, you're losing one of the – Pardon me. We're losing one of the foundations of the of the social system we've been used to, which is the mass consumption capitalist economy. For it to be a mass consumption capitalist economy, 
the mass of the population has to earn a, has a, li- and a living salary, and that was the case in America in the 50s and 60s. It is no longer the case. So what you know what can governments do? I mean, can they do anything at all? And central banks as well. So if, if we've got international trade inhibiting wage growth so we don't see inflation, central banks don't have their alarm bells ringing. They don't pick up interest rates. Uh, we have, So we continue to have low interest rates. That encourages more debt. So we spend more on Amazon. We see more imports. And so it goes on. It seems like central banks are becoming a bit powerless, aren't they? Well, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they don't understand the system they're trying to drive in the first place. That's that's you know being on the bridge of a ship and not knowing where the wheel is is a good reason to, to lose power despite the fact that you've actually got it in your hands there. So the central banks are another story again. But what I think we're really seeing is a, is a huge shift uh, which has been happening over the last century. But gradually in, we, re- reducing the need for labour in the first place to produce. And once you've reduced, removed the need to produce, if that is the basis of them getting an income, then their income is also going to disappear. And I, that's why I am in favour of the universal basic income, because we have to say, in, in a fundamental sense, the, the mask. The income distribution system that gave us a mass consumption capitalist society has, is breaking down, partly because of technological progress and partly because corporations can be footloose and exploit countries, which countries, of course, can't reply to. And we've also, the third factor, we've demonised workers so much, we've undermined them. Um, so a combination of undermining the workers' power, enabling corporations to move between countries and exploit those differences there, giving them more political power through things like the TPP and the capacity to sue governments and then the technological change which means over time they need less and less labor to produce that output we have destroyed the basis of a mass consumption society but if, now if we but if we have that if we have that universal basic wage aren't we just going to use that uh, you know in the west aren't we going to use that to buy more imports isn't that going to affect our, our balance of trade because we're, yeah yeah again you've got to say this, this, which this is, is a risk. All, yeah yeah the sovereignty will not be rebuilt uh, unless we rebuild it Mm. It won't happen through the forces of the market force. That's the market is going in the opposite direction. So the only way to achieve this is to say, well, we're trying to maintain a human society, not just a, a, an economy for profit for corporations. And if the trends in that profit for corporations mean we're heading towards, in my favourite, you know, I've said this so many times, a hunger world. I've got to watch the whole movie one of these days. <laughs> I can't stomach that stuff, but I've got to watch the whole thing. A Hunger Games future. If that's the future we face. They all die um, in the end, apart from one. That's all you need to know. Apart from one? Yeah, I think there's one survivor, isn't there, in the Hunger Games? That's the whole idea. That oh, yeah, but I mean the yeah. entire society. What yeah, I'm yeah. saying is mm. out, mm. the elite still travels on quite nicely, thanks very much. And they keep the... It could be a world where the elite does very well, where the mass does extremely poorly, and that is a pretty dysfunctional society. When the the reason for capital, the, the, one of the justifications for capitalism is the maximum welfare for the maximum number of people. When it becomes the maximum welfare for the minimum number of people, we have a problem, and we have to address it by political change. So, how do you have a universal uh, basic wage and not see that money gravitate towards those uh, to to the elite who are running those uh, multinational corporations? Paying cheap workers overseas and uh, and destroying your balance of trade in the process. Well, you then you have to make your balance of trade to focus, and you have to protectionism. Uh, is that what yeah. you're talking about? Uh, right. Yes, yes, no. yes. I would call it that if you like. Uh, but it's it's recognizing that you, if you want to go it alone in something like that and produce a decent standard of living for everybody. Uh, then you're going to increase the capacity of the poor to buy goods and services. And if you have a internationalized system where you have a higher income standard and a higher cost of 
manufacturing you know, labor standards than the rest of the world, you're going to face increase in imports. So you have to say, well, we're doing this and we're going to make sure that it doesn't cause the balance payments to blow up by more than X percent. And if it does, we change our tariff laws. We have to go to where we, we treat. Because in that sense, the sovereign unit is the is the that's the political unit in which we live. That's the that's the society in which we live. We don't live in an international society. Um, the humans, the, the vast majority of the population live in a national environment and you have to say that's their society. We want to make that society work as well as possible. Therefore, we have to limit the extent to which these things will leak overseas if we make, if you go it alone and trying for a, something to, to give people a, a decent income level, that means you're going to have to control your trade balance. So you're saying what Donald Trump's saying, basically. I mean, he's saying, yes, let's introduce protectionism. And admittedly, he's only doing it on fridges and solar cells, which are big, chunky items, so they're fairly easy to spot. I guess the, the question is how you produce those measures uh, on smaller things like books and software and services, you know, which you could order online. It's harder to control that sort of stuff. But he's saying that on one side, and on the other side, he's saying, well, let's get rid of some of these trade pacts, uh, which seems to be part of what you're saying as well they're not they're not helping us they're reducing the control of government which is and of course it's part of the reason why britain voted for brexit because we wanted to get rid of the control that europe has so uh, so so again sort of like the direction that donald trump said yeah like, I mean, there were parts of trump's alleged um program <laughs> that i was quite a sort of um what the the difference between the alleged program and the actual are, are pretty monumental mm. and i'm not i'm not going to assert that he understands anything that he's doing uh either so but fundamentally, we, we have to, if we're going to have a, a functional society, we have to make that society the focus of our policy objectives, not an abstract concept of an economy when it's been so completely globalized and internationalized that the poor in our society, those, those without ownership of capital, are going to get screwed with the direction life is going in. And if it keeps on going that way, you get what Nick and her called the pitchfork effect. And we're getting close, and in that sense, uh, the, the first the first pitchfork to be shoved up the ass of the establishment was yeah. Brexit. Okay, so we get so we we're sort of adjusting our economy based on the standard of living as it is today. In effect, aren't we? We're saying, well, we're going to start a a universal wage. That money uh, is obviously worth a lot more than uh, the, than the salaries of people living in parts of Asia, for example, where they're working on the cheap. So anything that they're making, which is so much cheaper, we are going to have to protect ourselves from. So we're going to start introducing tariffs uh, and sort of developing closed a, a lot, a series of closed economies. So we're, we're almost saying kissing goodbye to internationalization in that case. I mean, are, are there any disadvantages with that? Well, there certainly could be in terms of cost of production and, and, and supply chains and so on. But I, I mean, a, a huge part of a lot of what's going to happen here. These are policies which are never going to be implemented. We're talking about right now, okay? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but what what is likely to be implemented is we uh, apparently the level of carbon dioxide generation of in, in international shipping, which is a huge part of relocating production and then shipping goods to and fro, is something like close to half the total carbon we pump into the atmosphere now when we realize really? just wow. how yeah something you, you check out the stats mate it's one of us to talk about in the future but i've seen estimates that the the contribution of of large-scale shipping to the carbon dioxide output we're doing is astron well astronomical to coin a phrase so if we realize we simply have to have to cut back rapidly on the amount of carbon we're pumping into the atmosphere and also start to re remove it physically we can as well one of the first targets will be shipping Another will be international plane flights, which, of course, is also 
partly supporting this, both the flying around of executives and the occasional radical economist uh, and shipping high-value goods as well via plane when you want them uh, in rapidly into the, the marketplace on the other side and, and air, air cargo is cheap. So if we seriously realise this problem and say, damn, we've got to change it, the, one of the first things to go will be international shipping. So we so in answer to the question, can sovereignty survive? The answer is, well, it, it's looking a bit dicey, but one way would be some form of new parochialism is, is really what you're talking yeah. about. Well, the parochialism will come in when we realise that part of the cost we haven't actually considered in this whole relocation of production is the, is the transportation costs. Mm. And when you're talking transporting, you know, cars from Asia to be sold in America or sold in Europe, um, it ain't cheap in ecological terms to ship those uh, in enormous container vessels with diesel power uh, around the world and, and, and get them shipped in, you know, less you know, measured in days rather than weeks of shipping from one location to another. So those costs um, are, are going to hit us as a cost the ecology can't afford anymore. And we're going to be forced to go more local in that sense. And that is partly also part of the ecological argument. Think local, not think local, act, think locally, act globally. I think it's the think globally, act locally is the, is the slogan. And in that sense, that may be forced in economic policy as well. So if that doesn't happen, I mean, we are going to be faced with this situation, aren't we, of just flat wage growth because of this fear that the jobs are going to be taken in this, you know, in international world of trade that we that yeah. we exist under. Yeah. Uh, and no answer to that. And 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 we are no, no answer that doesn't completely overturn existing economic orthodoxies. And of course, that's all. Answers. Because there's so many political elements side <laughs> up, but well, it won't happen. Well, something's got to happen, though. We can't carry on because I mean, it's because it, it does spill over, doesn't it? Because then we have low interest rates because nobody wants to push up interest rates because we've not got inflation. If they don't push up interest rates, then people keep on buying stuff uh, with borrowed money because interest rates are so low, and then we get into this the, the, the housing bubble problem. It all, and of course, we start importing st- more stuff as well, which reduces our balance of trade, which is another issue. So the whole situation just continues to get worse yeah but that unfortunately we, the humans have never shown any capacity to get off an unsustainable trend until after it's broken and my feeling is that all this stuff we were talking in a very hypothetical way what, what i hope we're doing is justifying that there is a there's a logical basis for reversing the direction we've gone in for the last 40 or 50 years uh, when that is made inevitable by the one thing we can't control, which is what the climate, what we're doing to the climate, feeding back on the sustainability of our civilizations, and when that happens, or people saying you can't do that, that's anti-free trade, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, uh, I want to say, well, the case for free trade was pretty damn shallow to begin with. The case for relocation of production was equally shallow, so on and so forth, um, because yeah, we're not going to have any choice. In 10 to, between 10 and 30 years from now, a whole range of reasons which are fundamentally ecological and fundamentally driven by our overproduction on the planet, we're going to be forced direction to change direction on all this I stuff. I can see you getting an invite to the White House pretty soon. Uh, it's, it's, oh, yeah. <laughs> that'll go down well. Good to talk. We'll catch you again soon. Okay, mate. Bye. I do wonder if Donald Trump was listening to this now, he might be saying, that's exactly what I'm saying. This is why I'm pushing forward with this protectionist agenda. Uh, we'll see. Now, look, next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen, we're going to look at uh, the rich-poor gap. Why does it always widen when we have a recession? Uh, we'll break that down for you next time on the podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.